second to start the recording here. Just one second. Yep. Welcome to Bon Jovi Discussions. Today I have my buddy Michael from New York. How are you doing, buddy? What's going on, people? Doing good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on tonight and doing this chat with me. Of course. Been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. So before we get into the chat, though, I have to ask you, how did you become a Bon Jovi fan? Mom and dad. Okay. When I who, was who, who was the actual fan though between mom and dad? The mom? No, more dad. Mom was more nice. soft rock foreigner journey, and dad was Bon Jovi okay. leopard and so on. Nice. Okay. And that was about when I was when I was little, little. When I was six, seven years old. When I used to go to work with my dad, he would play the Crossroads CD endlessly. Okay. And that's how it all started. Oh, man. That's, so how old were you? How old? It was 2003, 2004. I was okay. seven. So then you started to dig deeper into their catalog and stuff? Yeah, actually, that Christmas, and it was actually kind of funny. In 04, I got <coughs> my first CD, and it was the, the This Left Feels Right CD. And mm -hmm. I put it in the car. I was so let down because it was all acoustic. And oh man, you wanted the whole when you're that young, you wanted just you know what you heard on the radio. Yeah. And as time moved on, and you know, you got introduced to technology like when you get your own phone, your own computer, and you start doing your own Googling and this and that. And that's when you undiscover a lot of a lot yeah. of stuff. <laughs> now, I, I always tell other people. This Life Feels Right is, is an incredible album. I absolutely love the album, but it's definitely not the first album I'd give to someone who's never really listened to them before. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. That's like an album that you give later down the road. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Uh, that's funny. What's your favorite song? Living in, Living in Sin. Nice. I love that one. I, I loved it when they would do Chapel of Love at the end of it live. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Living in Sin, that's great. What's your favorite album? Probably Lost Highway. Dude, that's my favorite. Yeah, dude, it's, I'm all about the writing more than, obviously I love all prayer, band name, all the anthems, but it's the writing that does it for me. Yeah. That makes me, like, that's why I like Living in Sin. My long story short, my parents are divorced and reading the lyrics of that song just made me understand things in a different way, a different light of stuff yeah. where you could view it. I know how John viewed it with Dorothea and, you know, his private life at that moment, but it, it goes, it has more than one meaning, which is what Absolutely. makes a great song. <laughs> yeah. And that's, what's beautiful about music is, you know, John says it all the time, what he writes down to write a song about and then puts it out there, it becomes your song and you can interpret it in different ways. You know, that's mm -hmm. the, that's the great thing about music, I guess, right? That's what's the bet. Well, that's what's great about Lost Highways, because it's. I see, like obviously, the country influences and the country writing behind it, but it has each song has like a different definition and different moment that kind that can kind of grab you, like as like we got it going on, which is more like the party kind of <laughs> song, yep. and then a song like the last night where it's still upbeat, but god are those lyrics powerful oh i know you know that, that's what lost highway is such a good album where you need something that pumps you up and makes you feel good you know like lost highway summertime yeah. we got it going on then there's those romantic songs or nostalgia you know like you want to make a memory you know and then there's also songs that are about loss and feeling alone yes, feeling isolated do. and just needing somebody to be there you know it, yeah. it's a fantastic album Memory grew on me. I didn't like. I didn't love that first. It grew on me. That is my absolute favorite song. I know. Um, Desmond Child takes so offense that it didn't get the commercial success it could have. Yeah. It, it is lyrically beautiful, but it just now I think just being a you know my late twenties and understanding the meaning of it if it comes to relationships with girls. I it's definitely it could yeah. definitely grab somebody's attention. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was pretty, it wasn't heavily popular, but it was, I mean, I heard it on the radio a lot back in 2007 and stuff, and, uh, you know, it was everywhere on TV, 
Um, but yeah, maybe it probably wasn't as heavily as successful as you know other singles and stuff. But but anyway, let's let's get into our topic because this is gonna be a really yeah. fun one. We are gonna talk about the evolution of the band. So we are gonna go from the early '80s all the way up to now. You know, we're just kind of give a little overview of each kind of era of the band albums and stuff, and just kind of talk about how they've evolutionized uh, over the years. So let's start back from even before there was Bon Jovi, right? So let's start with John Bon Jovi, who knew he wanted to be a rock star and, you know, really didn't care about school and, you know, played nightclubs and then would go to school the next day and then play nightclubs again that night and, and uh, he just had that hunger of um, success. You've obviously, you've heard the Power Station sessions. Yep. Yep. So, so you know a lot of those songs were recorded from 1980 to 83 when John worked. I know you know this already, but just in case anybody that's listening doesn't, John worked at his cousin's um, recording studio in New York, the Power Station, I think it was called. Yep. And uh, at night, John would be able to record on his own for a little bit. And so he had all these songs of demos. Obviously, they didn't go anywhere. And it unofficially got released to us, like, in the late 90s. And uh, so, but, the, but a lot of those songs on, the, on that album are gems. They are gems, especially um, the first record that they put out. They, because obviously everybody jumps to Runaway, and that's the main focus yeah. of it. They have, like, songs like Get Ready, Shot through the heart, yeah. which is let's let's stay pre debut first, though, yeah, because like you said, we're I, I, I didn't mean to rudely interrupt you, I just wanted to kind of go back to the power station real quick. Before there was even a runaway, these songs you know, that were recorded in 80, 81, 82, runaway kind of came in 82, 83, um, before the band even came in. But those songs that were recorded from 80 to 82, man, those are phenomenal. And how those didn't really get much. Yeah, I know John probably didn't really promote it or try to sell it to a radio station. But man, I think a lot of the songs in there could have really been successful. Yeah, 100%. It could have, you know, it was also him taking matters into his own hands, too, just to get the attention he eventually needed. But his, yep. his write in solo or when he would collaborate was second to none from the beginning he always he always knew how to tell a story through a song which is extremely important because that's how you that's how you you know you grow and network your audience in that way you, it's a connection yeah yeah you can you could take them you know if you're going left right you you could take them and you can make those songs impact people but not the way that he probably wrote it for himself where he was feeling this way about whatever the topic he was thinking of but somebody else views it and you know be like yeah no i this relates to me but not in the from the like the prospect the way that you wrote it that's that's why he's such a great songwriter yeah exactly and you know then you know eventually runaway got you know, written and recorded and stuff. And it's actually, a lot of people think it's the actual band Bon Jovi that recorded it. It's not. It's different hired musicians. Yeah. And so in 83, John was just going from radio station to radio station or record company to record company saying, hey, you got to listen to this runaway. It's I think it's good. And nobody would take it. And as you already know, he found a lonely DJ in New York City. I'm drawing a blank on the name. It'll come to me at the end of this. I'm was his name the dj's name i believe was chip hobart that yeah yep chip and uh you know thank there was no secretary so john was able to give it to him and the dj thankfully played it i mean it just became a request and it was a hit and john didn't even have a record deal yet he didn't have a band he just on his own with hired musicians and then obviously you know with this story you know alec kind of introduced everybody to john and that's how you know alec tico um david uh and richie you know and then they john got the record deal with mercury but the band didn't so i think john was signed before the band was even formed yeah he essentially had 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 the had a hit record without a band he had he had the runaway he had runaway on the radio everywhere but he had studio musicians playing the actual instruments on it but there wasn't the um 
the Bon Jovi, the band that everybody knows, they were that wasn't informed yet, really. Exactly. And um, and so when he did get signed, he eventually formed, you know, the band as we knew it, know it. Um, and they were signed under him. And then they went in to record the debut album. And what I love, and we'll get into 7800 here in a, in a moment, but what I really loved about debut and 7800 is that it's a shame how underrated they are, but I think it makes us value that those albums more because in a way, those albums were, as John calls it, his baby albums, and he's like embarrassed by them. But I think they're two gems because those two albums really show the hunger that they had for success and that to, and to make it. And there was a lot of collaborative effort. You know, David also wrote some songs. Richie was essential on guitar. He was just phenomenal. John's <laughs> vocals. I mean, the band was just on point. And there's a lot of gems, you know, like like Shot Through the Heart, um, Get Ready, Come Back, and uh, uh, so, Roulette, songs like that. They're like, wow. Oh, like That's another beautiful one. Which one? Love Lies. I love oh, that song. Love Lies, yeah. That's the one with the, the piano intro, right? Yeah, no intro. And yeah. that's where you hear his voice really expand, go to high, like how he, how he you know, when yeah. he was younger, he could... Without the big courses, him on his own could do that. Yeah, exactly. And another thing I want to mention too, I mentioned about you know the piano. A lot of rock bands back in the '80s were not doing keyboards, keyboard players. A lot of keyboard players were playing playing in pop bands and stuff like that. But rock bands, like hair bands, they weren't doing keyboard players. You usually just had two guitar players, a bass player, and a drummer. And I think what made Bon Jovi really stand out. Uh, along with many other things, was that there was a keyboard player and it added a different kind of sound that you didn't get with all the other hair bands. As much as I love those other hair bands, yeah. they all kind of coincided with each other, you know? But Bon Jovi had that distinct sound, you know? That's where I think John always, you know, wanted to more stay true to himself where, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, the most, you know, common um, musical instruments are you know, piano, guitar, drums, where he, you know, it's like, of course we're going to have one. You know, he's not trying to, he's never yeah. trying to copy anybody and be like, we're going to be Journey Part 2. We're at, that's what we're going to do. He never did that. He kind of did his own thing, and obviously it's worked. Exactly. You know, and, and then, you know, for the debut album, you know, they, they opened up for ZZ Top and Kiss and uh, Scorpions and stuff, and you're just trying to get the... Uh, their name out there basically and you know they were booed so many times at different shows and stuff and debut sold quite a few copies but it also tanked yeah as many first albums do especially back then for bands you know but then we get into 7800 and you had a different avenue i i think richie was heavier on this album which i think is great mm -hmm. um, and i think the lyrics were also getting more Debut was just seeing what the band could produce. I think 7800 was trying to figure, okay, how do we collaborate as a band? How do we, where are we, where are we trying to find our sound? Where are we trying to write about? Stuff like, you know, they're trying to find their path. And I think 7800 really demonstrates that. Yeah, it definitely, it gets, you know, kicked, kicked around a lot as it's, you know, this poor album and so on and so forth, but it's truly not. I mean, some of uh, you read half of the lyrics to the songs on 7800, whether it's Only Lonely or Silent Night or The Price of Love, Hardest Part is the Night. It's like reading a soap opera because it's pure poetry. And the, the songs, maybe they didn't stick commercially, but don't tell me it might have been whatever that the movement was at the moment but don't tell me it was because the songs were bad because they weren't at all exactly and i i, I think i love both the debut and 700 but if i had to pick which album was better 700 hands down and we also get introduced to a little more ballad ballad like bon jovi because in the debut you get a little bit of that but you don't get a yeah. lot of it you got a taste of it and 7800 really they, they were all heartbroken, it sounded like. They, they yeah. all took their emotions and put them out there. And that was almost like a hint for more what's to come. 
Yeah, and they were all going through breakups, and I think one of them was going, he was going through a divorce, and, um, but, you know, you get songs like Price of Love, Only Lonely, Silent Night, songs like that where it's, they're pulling their hearts out, you know, but then you also get fun songs like In and Out of Love, which is just a fucking incredible in, intro to the album, and, you know, Richie's displays on guitar. Um, another thing I want to bring up, too, before we move ahead, the music videos from the first two <laughs> albums. If you want to watch anything that's cringy and cheesy, yeah. so you don't know me, especially that beach scene and uh, oh. only lonely, which only lonely video makes no sense whatsoever. Even though it's such a great song, it's a the great video song. is like, what? It's <clears> like a combination of being on the boardwalk in Seaside Heights, New Jersey, and like a wannabe mob movie with the guy, <clears throat> not the guy in the beginning. It was like they were trying to hit every part of how they all are in three minutes and forty-five seconds. It was, it was, it was definitely something. Yeah, you know, and even John has said in interviews like he doesn't know what any of these videos were even meant to be, and he said he was just it was so goofy and yeah. You know, but they were just young in their 20s. And, you know, they were just excited to have a record deal and being able to release an album. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, yeah, but it's... Uh, let's get into Slippery now because Slippery was definitely a different path changer. So, obviously, 700 was a little more successful than the debut, but it wasn't as successful for the record company to want to keep the band going. So, the record company told John, hey, you have one more shot if this tanks... We're dropping you. So this was essentially a make it or make it or break it album. And uh, you know, they brought in Desmond Chad as we we know who's written many uh, hits. Excuse me. But I'm a little clogged up, but I get I'm getting over a head cold. Um, but uh you know they so they brought in Desmond Child to uh, produce and it was actually gonna be called Wanted Dead or Alive. And there was a few different titles and you know we know about the phone, the album cover is gonna be them in background. What's that? The pink border background well, with the girl. Well before that the Wanted Dead or Alive so when it was initially concepted as Wanted Dead or Alive, the cover was gonna be them like as cowboys and like mm -hmm. big beards and like I don't think they would have been taken seriously. I don't think that album would have been as successful with that kind of cover. And then, like you said, with the busty woman and stuff, um, I, I think that would have done well in the 80s, to be honest with you. But John wanted to be taken more serious than... Because a lot of bands back then were just talking about sex and drugs. Yeah. And, you know, obviously John talked a lot... There's a few songs that talk about sex and stuff, but he also wanted to talk you know, about fun party songs and and feeling good and, and stuff like that. So he, he wanted to be in a different direction than the other bands were. So obviously it became super wet, as we know, you know, with the album cover of him right on Trash Bank. But musically, Slippery, which as you and I both, anybody that pretty much listened to this, Slippery was a huge game changer. It just, they became an opening band to being an afterthought to being booed on stage to the world's biggest band. And it's funny, too, because the beginning of the Slippery When Wet album, they were opening up for other bands, and they had they had a contract to open up for these bands, but they were bigger than the actual headlining bands. And then all of a sudden, it was flipped. They were headliners, and they, you know... Our 38 Specialist Tour, pretty much, because they were opening for them. And when yeah. that record hit, forget it. It, yeah. went, it took off to the moon, and... It's crazy because you can go songs one through ten and you cannot skip any of them because no. you're just you're in heaven because it's that album is thank God he thank God it's it's on this earth honestly because I don't know where I would be without it. You know, you know, it has a good. You, you mentioned one to ten and it has such a good flow to it because you know you put that album in. And one thing I'll, I'll mention about Bon Jovi, especially in the 80s, was how each song opened up. You know, 1700, you had In and Out of Love, Slippery, um, Let It Rock, A New Jersey, Lay Your Hands on Me, um, Keep the Faith, I Believe. I, I just go on. But it, it was such a great way to open up Slippery and Wet with the, the pink, pink flamingos, David Bryan playing, mm -hmm. playing that. And then, you know, just this heavy blown, fun rock song. 
Um, you're just about having a good time and rock and rolling and, and stuff like that. And then you know, every single song that they release as a single is a major hit. Bad Name, Prayer, Wanted, Never Say Goodbye, Wild in the Streets. Although Never Say Goodbye, Wild in the Streets wasn't as successful. They, they were like little late. hits. <laughs> yeah. Well, they also came in late, too, of the the first three, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because the album's been out for a while now, and so it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the last single, last two singles for any band, for any album, if the album's more than a year old, the singles aren't going to be as successful because mm-hmm. people have already heard it. You, you yeah, move cycle through. Exactly. But, uh, you know, so, you know, so... The it twice. That, like, even how impactful Slippery was, think of, like, Raise Your Hands was an opener, like, throughout the whole 2010 decade, the 2000s yeah. decade, and I don't, even, I don't think it was technically released as a single off of Slippery, and that song is probably one of their, out of all their concerts, my favorite when they open it. Whenever I've seen them, they've only, they've opened with Raise Your Hands pretty much every time, and makes you want to speed in your car. That that song's insane. Oh, I'm surprised that it didn't become a single. Like, yeah. I love Wild in the Streets, and I actually prefer it over Raise Your Hands. But from a success standpoint, I'm surprised they didn't release Raise Your Hands as the single to Wild in the Streets. Yeah, I could, I mean, Raise Your Hands commercially, I think, would have been more appealing because it, it, it was easier to sing. It was simpler to sing. You yeah. understood it a little bit more. Yeah, and it had like the little pre-chorus before, obviously the big chorus. The guitar riff in the beginning has, you know, that you don't need to say anything about that. Exactly. And, uh, so let's get into New Jersey. So you know, with the band's overnight success with Slippery, you know, they were they were the biggest band in '86 and '87. But after the Slippery tour ended, John wanted to make in the band wanted to make sure that they weren't known as a one-hit wonder, that they could actually do this again. So if they went in with New Jersey, at the time it was the Sons of Beaches, they're going to call it Sons of Beaches, but it became New Jersey. But they went in there to prove that they weren't just a one-hit wonder, that they could still write hits, they could still sell out arenas and stadiums and stuff. And they worked, I think like the first batch of songs that John had written for that album, he wasn't confident in any of those songs and so they scrapped them mm-hmm. and uh some of them are on the deluxe album that came yeah. out in 14 i think i'm pretty yeah. sure well not those so a lot of the songs that were in there that first i think i think we've got like three of them but a lot of those were just tossed yeah. there's a lot because a lot of those songs that are on the deluxe edition mm-hmm. are actually from the second batch of songs <clears throat> yeah but um but so with New Jersey, they had so much more to prove. And obviously, as we know, they released New Jersey, and it was huge. I mean, Lay Your Hands on Me, Bad Medicine, I'm Born to Be With My Baby, Sin, uh, Blood on Blood was released as a video, um, and then I'll Be There For You. That's what's crazy. The first five songs you just said are the tracking order on the CD. It's Lay Your Hands, Bad Medicine, Born to Be With My Baby, Living in Sin, and Blood. Like, those are your first five songs you're doing – yeah, been really right, and I'll be there for you. Which I actually think was—I could be wrong, but I think it was more Richie than John. Like I know they both co-wrote it, but I think he had the title originally, and he kind of poor. You know, they both obviously wrote it, but he had more of um. That was more like of his baby. It felt like. Yeah, they, there's a lot of interviews, especially back in the eighties. Richie, even John has said it. Richie was going through a breakup, <clears throat> like in the first, you know, I guess this time you're really leaving. I heard your suitcase say goodbye, blah, blah, blah. That was Richie that wrote that because he was going through a breakup and he started compiling all these different things. I, he brought it to John pretty much finished and John just kind of tweaked this and that. And then it was done. And it's if they didn't release a song by this point, 1988, where they didn't pour their hearts out, I'll be there for you was that song. Yeah, just and I, I think I'll be there for you is probably one of the greatest songs that you get as a John and Richie collaboration, especially the way that they sing vocally. You yeah, because it, it's almost like Richie's more of a co-lead singer on this song, where because yeah. the way they harmonized was it was insane. Cause it was almost like it felt like 
in a good way, a fight back and forth of who can like one up each other. Because when yeah. the um, bridge comes and everything, I mean, R- Richie's blues comes out of him, and oh yeah, <laughs> it makes your um, hair stand up on your arms. Oh, absolutely, man, absolutely. And you know, even Rich when Rich has done it solo, or not even with the band. You know, when he sings it, when he sings that song live. That song that yeah. he can he can move the room. Yeah. So, you know, New Jersey proved that they were still one of the greatest rock bands. They were the greatest rock band. There's, there's no argument there. They were. Mm-hmm. And they went on this massive New Jersey tour from 88 to, to early 1990. And as we know, it, it, it dug them out. It uh, tired them down. It, they were exhausted. And they kind of, as John said, they went on five planes in five different directions at the end of the tour. Was and it's funny because the record, the manager, they wanted to give them another seventy more. How many? Seventy more shows they wanted yeah. them to do. They would have died. Yeah, dude. they would have. And also, ninety nine in the shade is a gem. That song is oh, so man. much fun. Yeah, and you could tell John really has a like in recent years. We've learned that John has a love for that song. Yeah. And I wish he would sing. I think he said on the Sirius XM thing, New Jersey special a few weeks ago, that he'd love to sing it again, but it's too high for him. Yeah, those those days. I was like, I don't care about that. Just, just, yeah, just, just, just get it out there. Just yeah. it's not even like forget about vocally. To hear that drum and guitar intro. Oh yeah. Would. <sighs> yeah, especially as an intro to the show, I think it would be great. Oh, that would be beautiful. That would yeah. be. That that song's a it's a it's a grabber. It grabs you by the throat and it takes yep. it takes you on a fun, however you want to view it, booze, girls. Like th- that though that was the fun side where like like social disease, ninety nine in a shade. That was like it wasn't corny where like you knew what they were talking about. They did, but yep. they didn't like, I guess, dumb it down. They 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 made it you know as dressed up as they could. Yeah, you know, New Jersey was all about having a good time with you know twenty year olds having fun, sex. Um, and then heartbreak and love and, you know, obviously falling in love and also being heartbroken. Uh, <laughs> but let's get into so the end of the New Jersey tour. They were exhausted, didn't want to be around each other, and they, they weren't sure they were going to get back together. They just went their separate ways. John went into doing uh, Blaze of Glory, which I guess we'll briefly talk about because I think that's an important part of the evolution of the band. Obviously, Richie did Stranger in This Town, uh, but John was asked to do a movie for Young Guns 2. And uh, this was during a time where John was really depressed you know, because of touring and stuff and the huge success that he had. And he went on a motorcycle ride with his friends. It's a cross-country thing. Cross-country. And wrote a lot of these songs. And what's what, what I find so great about this album, Blaze of Glory, is that, yeah, it was written for Young Guns album, which is about Billy the Kid. He was writing about Billy the Kid but he was also writing songs about himself and about where he was at that time with the band. You know, like songs like Never Say Die and Miracle is a great is a, lyrically a great song on that album. Yeah. And I, I also think that John obviously the band is you, you can't have Bon Jovi without th- those guys. Yeah. Okay. But I think John also needed to prove that he could be successful on his own. And show that he had that talent. And obviously, Blaze of Glory is a perfect example of that. They, when he was able to pull off Blaze of Glory by himself, I mean, that had to be the biggest confidence yeah. boost to himself. And just in general, because Blaze of Glory is no, like, little gimmick solo song. Oh. That song, everybody knows that song. They, a lot of people just think it's a Bon Jovi song. It was on you know what one of those albums back then but that song really he he i think he he was i think he was always a man but he went from like being in his 20s to being like the way he wrote that song and especially solo he's the only credential on songwriting on that i mean that's he he took the movie script and made it into um you know a five minute and what 50 second you know, number one song where he gets a Golden Globe for it. He he yeah. showed he flexed his muscles there, and yet stayed humble with it. Yeah, and it was just this you know massive album. And I I think it kind of helped keep the Bon Jovi name 
out there, you know, because from 1990 to mid-1992, you didn't really hear anything about the band, but you also had John Bon Jovi mm-hmm. creating this this successful soundtrack album with Blaze of Glory. And uh, I, I think that was great because that kind of kept fans intrigued and connected. Even though they didn't know where the band was going at that time, they knew, okay, well, John's doing this, so this is what's happening, you know. And then, so that's going to keep the faith. So obviously, um, John was you know, about to be 30 here and decided he wanted to keep the band going. And so th- I think it was Aeros- someone in Aerosmith's camp sat with the band in a room. Luke just- Cox was his name. Luke Cox, that's, yep. And they were all sitting in a room and they kind of just hashed things out. And John kind of is like, this is my direction. This is where I want us to go. And then he fired Doc McGee. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was the manager of, of the 80s and said, you know, we're going to manage ourselves. We're going to follow the vision. And you, you have to remember, 80s hair bands going into the 90s weren't successful because we're getting into the grunge era. We're getting not into the pop. Pop was more mid-90s. Which we'll yeah, get it, was getting, it was from like 95 yeah. on. Yeah. Even so, with, go ahead. No, you go ahead. When... He when keep to faith, but sorry, because he he says it like jokingly, but it, it it's true when he says it. When they were got rid of Doc McGee, were going to manage themselves. He always says it. He goes, "I may be the like essentially the quarterback of this team, but don't think I don't need you know the line, the running back, so on and so forth. I just don't think I don't I need you guys more than anything." And took it into his vision and you know implemented every you know bits and parts of. The other four is vision and keep to faith. I mean, I don't like another part of his solo writing, like, like bed of roses. I mean, he absolutely killed it. He, he know, he know, he knows how to song write like that. And yet had songs like keep to faith, sleeping on dead to keep, you know, the fans more, you know, engaged with it because they're more anthony and dancey and they're fun to play live. And that's where I want to get into, but, but, what I wanted to try to also mention was that going into the, you know, you had still some later bands that were kind of late to the game, like Firehouse and even Poison Try. You know, Poison was around for a while, but, you know, um, other bands like uh, Warrant and stuff, like they were up yeah, and coming, but the 80s hair band thing was kind of dying off in the early 90s. And so I think John realized that, hey, I'm going to cut my hair a little bit. We're going to change the direction of sound because Keep the Faith is a lot different than it, 80s was about having fun, sex, stuff like that. But 90s Bon Jovi was a lot more mature. You know, the new era, new type of sound, you know, mm-hmm. stick to what they were, but also changing the dynamics of what they're writing about. You know, obviously, the songs like Keep the Faith, I believe, you know, songs like Dry County were very socially conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then you still got the feel-good tracks like Blame It On The Love, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Then you got the great love songs like In These Arms, Better Roses, I Want You, uh, stuff like that. So, you know, they stuck to who they were, but they were also becoming more mature. You know, and me they, as the- they, I think they started to understand that they wanted, you know, this is, you know, they wanted this to be their career. They don't want to die off kind of like how Poison kind of flopped and Warren kind of flopped. We all know. Yeah. Guns N' Roses, you know, story of, of the 90s. Yeah. And he didn't want that. He wanted to keep going to, you know, prove that not only are we relevant, but we're on the top still. Exactly. You know, and I don't think they would have been as successful. They were still writing what they were writing in the in the 90s. You know, I think Keep the Faith was a great first single. And it's funny because John Cutting's hair was bigger news. It was on CNN. Bon Jovi. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to me. But, you know, Keep the Faith was, is such a good album. I, th- I I always say 90s Bon Jovi was the peak of the band. And we'll get into that with these days. And, but 90s was just the best time for the band because they were on point, on their game, at their peak. Especially John vocally, you know, In These Arms and Better Roses. Something like that really proves yeah, how great he, John was uh, vocally. Um, even live, when they did... Um, <laughs> Keep the faith. The um the even evening in New York special when they open with um a little help from my friends by the Beatles. Okay. Yep. How he belts that 
especially the end high notes out live is, I mean, he's just, he's just there to show you that they're, they're here, they're staying here. And it's weird. Cause some of the other guys like Richie, Tico, Dave, Alec, they all had their long hair still, but they were like, it was classed up and dressed up where, you know, they yeah. were it's almost yeah. like they put the business suit on, but they still had the, you know, like the bad boy look that, yeah. you know, kept everybody honest about him too. Yeah. And, and the photography of Keep the Faith too was, I think, a little aimed toward the grungish look, which, you know, which, it worked out well. You know, it, 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 I love the photography for that. Yeah. And, you know, plus the whole album cover, Keep the Faith with their hands Mm-hmm. All, you know, because that symbolized what, like we kind of said a little bit ago, new direction of the band, new era, new vision. And just all five band members saying, we're in this together as a band, and then go. Yeah, let's get rolling. So, so let's get into, uh, so the first couple, and this is the album that started it all for you with your dad, Crossroad. Obviously, it was just a compilation. And it actually started out as the band wanted to, because they're famous for the Unplugged series back in 88 when John Ritchie did Wanted in Prayer. But they wanted to do it with Runaway. And it didn't work out. And so they actually decided to redo Prayer and they put it on the Crossroad album. And then we got Always yes. and Someday I'll Be Saturday Night, which started, Someday I'll Be Saturday Night was actually supposed to be on These Days album. Yeah. And got put on um, Crossroad. But uh, Always is the band's biggest number one single. And that says so much because it's essentially on technically their first greatest hits compilation. It's on their first, you know, the title of the album Crossroad, where it just kind of, the way I view it is, you know, they're, you know, crossing roads, obviously, going into more mature sound, but, you know, they're still staying true to their roots. And always, I mean... This is this goes back to just they know how to open a song with yeah. Tico's drum fill in the beginning and then Dave's um, piano and yeah. the way Richie's guitar solo is it's not so much more <laughs> like lead um, 80s loud but it's obviously still great but it's it's like bluesed up it's more soulful yeah. and the the song always was actually it was supposed to be in a movie I think called. Um, Romeo's bleeding. Romeo's bleeding, and it was going to be a soundtrack, and and some executive or whoever you know asked for a song, and the movie didn't make it, and John was like, and the guy said to John, he's like, that song's going to be a smash. He's like, you think? And they put it on Crossroad and forget. I actually like the live version of that song so much so, better. <laughs> so that's actually an iconic story. So it's actually flipped. So John wrote always for Romeo's bleeding. Yeah. And- and then um, he watched the demo of the movie, um, The Rough Cup, and, and didn't like the movie at all. And he pulled the song out and didn't think it was worth much. And so he put it on a shelf somewhere. And it was actually the producer, um, I'm drawing a blank right now, who was helping to produce Crossroads. And this is going to be a, a smash hit. And John said, no, it's not. Yeah. And I, I think John said there was something there for it, though. But... Um, I think what is on the 2004 box that was actually the version that was supposed to go on the movie. So obviously it was definitely a lot different than what went on Crossroad. But obviously then it went on Crossroad. Thankfully it was a band. John has never been known to be successful with picking out the right songs. (laughs) You know, prayer as an example, you know. But um, yeah, so that's that's so you had the story that was just flipped. I think it was just such an important story to 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 mention. So it needs to be, and even just that song live is the the outro with the guitar man does um usually the pre-chorus and the bridge. It's yep. not you know it, it's it's good without Richie, but when Richie you know was there at the peak and the two not the late nineties two thousands, man, that was magic. Yeah, Wembley ninety five. Oh. The most amazing performance. If I had to pick one, the most incredible performance by the band, if I could go back in time to see any performance, Wembley 95 of always. Man, the way that Richie just pours his heart out, that outro. The band like the band is just on point with it all. You know? Like they don't miss a single note. They're in it and stuff. It's just, man, I love it. It's absolutely phenomenal. And you know, it's 
And it's funny too because a lot of people think always as a love song, like, oh, I love you, baby, always. And it's not. As you know, it's about a stalker who's obsessed with some woman. Yeah. And the video portrays. Watch a music video. Yeah. I don't really think they have that, like, I love you kind of love song. There was always a little bit of pain in them. He yeah. obviously they, they had songs where they emphasize like story of love is a newer song. And that's, I think more about his family and stuff, but yeah, man, he made, he was very realistic with his early ballads. I'll be there for you. Better roses always. Cause he wanted, you know, especially he was talking to his audience, which was then, you know, between, late teens to you know whatever his age was at the moments where he was like yeah no it sucks to get your heart ripped out and mm-hmm. you know this is how exactly how how you're probably feeling <laughs> exactly and uh it just it was a funny and the photography for that era too you know they did a lot of the photo shoot at roadside diner which i visited one year about 10 years ago and it was kind of cool to see you know uh his little rink and dink diner and stuff and they I, know, so I love the, the style. Like, even if you look at like, the, this poster here, you know, the band looks so cool. Mm-hmm. And actually kind of brings me to my next point. So this was actually Alex's departure here. Yep. So this photo here, Alex is actually in that photo too, but this poster was sold yeah. on these days tour and they cut Alec out of it. But um, so I, I think we had to mention, you know, the original basis, Alec John Such. What's the the best way to phrase this? Left the band. You know, they obviously you know. And left the that, business. Yeah, you know, Alec was spilling the beans. You know, it's no secret that Alec actually didn't play a lot of the albums. Yeah, He's, from what I understand, especially after the slippery New Jersey era, after the '80s era, he wasn't on much of Keep the Faith, and obviously he wasn't on any of the of Saturday Night and Always. Yeah. Well, from what I've learned, he wasn't a lot. He wasn't on a lot of the '80s stuff either. He did a few tracks here and there, or, or he would write, or somebody else would write yeah. the, his stuff, and he'd record either record or somebody else would record it. He just got the credit, but he was essentially the playing basses live, and it, it, that's that's it for a lot of bands. Um, but uh, yeah, so Alec left the band, and obviously Hugh kind of you know john had always kind of said you know we're not we're never going to replace it was unofficially or yeah. an official member and we're never going to replace any of the band members the original band members we'll fast forward to 2016 okay but mm-hmm. that so these days came out and you know these days i'd probably put it as my fifth or sixth favorite album but you cannot deny that it is probably the greatest bon jovi album that they have ever done we yeah. talked about we talked about the, the the 90s was their peak these days was the peak of that peak and it was you know it's funny because a lot of the critics and even fans will say this, this is such a dark album but john will say it was the happiest time of his life at the time and was optimistic and as i i think you as a fan you really have to get into that album because it's one of those misery loves company albums but you also let's find the light at the end of the tunnel together. Yeah. You know, we're in this together. Let's get through it. Then you find that light. That's where the optimism, I think, comes in. You know, songs like "Lie to Me" is a perfect example of that. You know, the, there was it was a very mature album. It was very maturely written, and then he still had the same, you know, philosophy. Where like, "Hey, God's the first track. That's a hell of a way to open an album," and then having songs like. Obviously, this ain't a love song. These days, something for the pain. My guitar lies bleeding in my arms. He th- that album, you know, and my it's probably my third favorite album. That album can hang with any of them. I enjoy that album. I never skip a song on that album. That album really, it just and it just showed that they were comfortable in their own skin doing yeah. what they were doing. They weren't trying to recreate what they did on their first four albums they were evolving with their times and they were um you know that that's probably one of their most successful tours as well the these days tour exactly yeah and it, it, it's such a shame because it wasn't these days wasn't successful in the in the 90s or, or in the u.s here um overseas it was overseas it was huge yeah but here people are expecting just another fun rock but like you said it was the most mature album that they were that they had that they ever have done and 
Sadly, I mean, there's such good gems on there, you know, that really, you know, Heartbreaking Even is my absolute favorite one on that album. And yeah. I, I love how, I, I always think it's like an always sequel that didn't live yeah. up to the bar. I can see where always. he's going with that. Uh, yeah, it pretty much has the same, a lot of the same chords and instrumentation, just a little different. But um, yeah, but the, you know, these days is, you know, obviously it's a huge diehard fan favorite. Mm-hmm. You ask a lot of diehards and they'll say these days. Um, even the photography was phenomenal, you know, with the band. And, um, you know, in 96, they released a special edition of these days in Europe because of how successful it was. Yeah, they, these, these days overseas was, was massive. I mean, those three Wembley shows in 95, I think, just shows you how massive it was at having the crowd singing the scene a love song back to them that and that's probably in the u.s that ballad i don't think is talked about or appreciated as much because it just wasn't as commercial commercially successful here yeah but man this this ain't a love song i think it was 2013 on the what about now tour they were in italy and he was bantering back and forth with the crowd of what to do the encore with and when he said this ain't a love song that crowd roared for like he was doing who's louder who's louder and it was this ain't a love song and i forgot what the other song was and they which, all which show are you talking about i you, you cut out in milan in italy in 2013 oh, okay when he said um he was bantering between which songs to you know close the show out with and he said i think it was i'll be there for you these days and he was like letting them scream to make the decision and this ain't a love song one and he blew it away <laughs> wow uh, and it, it's it's great to see that those songs still live up you know it's a shame because here in the states it's very rare that he'll play those songs but overseas he'll play this ain't a love song um and these days even diamond ring something for the pain has kind of gotten some airplay here and there hey god as well um, yeah, hey, hey, God, more than them, I think. I know they would do Diamond Ring and like something to believe in, something, something for the pain on the circles yeah. or acoustically when yeah. they would when they would go out um, into the circle, and even with um, this ain't a love song. They, they, I mean, they that's a staple overseas. He, I'm pretty sure he closed the 2011 tour in Portugal with this ain't a love song. Yeah. That, that yeah. song stands up. Yeah. You know, something else that's worth two of these days tour is two things. The way that he would end the show these days with the, the throw on the mic stand and, you know, get on his knees and finishing that song and walking off. And then also Yoka, Yokohama, 1996, with something to believe in. Man, what a phenomenal performance of that. You know, and there's also good, other good performance of that song too, but Yokohama, man, blows me away. Wembley performances. Um, Let's get into um, 1997. So obviously, um, the band took not not a break, but just a. Obviously, the, the band has said in interviews, "Hey, we're not broken up. We're just kind of you know because this is mid 1996 when they finished the These Days tour, and John was starting to get into acting. You know, Moonlight yeah. Valentino, Little City, Leading Man, stuff like that. Bunch of movies. You know, so he was kind of focused on that. And then he also released a solo album, Destination Anywhere. Richie released Undiscovered Soul. David Bryan released On a Full Moon. Um, and so, but I want to talk about John's solo album here, Destination Anywhere, because I think that's one of his most honest and open and vulnerable albums that he has ever written. Yeah, it was definitely the way, like, again, how they, they didn't split. It was just, they, they all... I think just had a clearer vision for themselves at the moment compared to when New Jersey ended and the debacle was because of, <coughs> you know, the record people wanting, you know, 70, 80 more shows. And they just basically took a step back. We're not going anywhere. We're not broken up. We're all doing our own things at the moment. And yeah. John, um, he had a fun little tour, I think, with Destination Anywhere with yeah. that had Everett Bradley on it, too, as a percussionist. Uh, and then Bobby Bandiera. Yep, and, and Richie did Undiscovered Soul, and yeah, it's so unique to hear Richie with Bon Jovi and Richie solo. Yeah, it's too different because he he's even said that you know 
when him and John would write, you know, all the records, it was more like it was like a healthy debate when they would collaborate and write about whatever topic they were talking about. And on his solo records, he would be as bluesy as you could be. And you would think there's no way this guy is in, you know, wasn't a hard rock band or any of that kind of stuff. And it just shows how musically, how, you know, great they could they could stretch. They could play all fields, essentially. Yeah, I, I, I you, you, you nailed it there because they really, I think, as John has said in later years, it's it's good for the bands to go out and venture and do other things. And then they come back and they have something fresh to bring into. Mm-hmm. But John and Richie, even David's solo albums, all three of them, you, you get a taste of their talents individually. Like Richie, you know, you can tell how bluesy he is and how soulful his voice is. His, you know, John, you get a better sense of his songwriting. You know, and I want to talk about Destination Anywhere because it coincided. As I said he was in a bunch of different movies. He also produced Destination Anywhere, the film, which was kind of centered off of his uh, manager at the time, Paul Corzelius, um, who's been with the band for many years. But his, you know, the story is um, which August 7th, 7th comes from. Uh, she was basically, it's an unsolved mystery still, but she was basically kidnapped and murdered. And that kind of made John write an album about some of that. And then the movie was obviously centered off of that. But in the album itself, you could tell that it's one of the most open and most vulnerable, honest albums that he has ever written. And it's you know, he has such good songs in there. Like, everywhere was a piece of my heart. It's just me. Um, staring at your suitcase. Uh, Midnight in Chelsea is fun. You know? And uh, But you know, 90s was such a good era for the band. Uh, or for John at the end of the 90s because, you know, they had 97, 98. And basically, the band was back together at the end of 98 because they started to write songs for Crush, yep. which was supposed to be called Sex Cells in 99, but then it got moved to 2000, which we are actually going to end this recording and we're going to do a part two here to start off with Crush. But to kind of conclude this episode... Um, they were, so they really didn't get much time away from each other because they essentially regrouped at the end of 98 and to start writing for what we know as, as Crush. But it was still cool to see kind of see John in the act. I mean, there was a movie left and right with him. You know, we had... Yeah, he was... Um, yeah. And he was, he's a, like, like you said... I'm sorry, I didn't hear you cut out. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Like, like he says um, all the time, like about It's My Life, that, you know... With Frank Sinatra, like he was doing it his way. He was yeah. doing movies when he wanted to. He was, you know, he was, you know, he was, you know, evolving. He was seeing, you know, if he liked this, if he didn't like this, and that was the best part of it. That they all had the understanding to do those things. Yeah. Without, you know, um, it being an article that, you know, John's going solo or Richie's going solo. It, it wasn't that because it was all collaborative. They all agreed to this amongst each other that. We're doing this. You're doing this. You're doing that. See yep. you in a year and a half, and we'll we're gonna see where we all are from there. We'll move forward from there. Exactly. Um, so let's end this episode with finishing up with the '90s. I'm gonna end the recording, and then we'll start on part two. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, buddy. No problem.